All right, so we're going to continue our message and pick up right where we left off this morning. We talked about the canon of the Bible. We talked about the 66 books that are contained in this Bible and uh, I've been explaining why I believe that these 66 books are accurate, that we should have these 66 books. We are not missing any. We do not need to add any. And we have three very reliable witnesses that God has given us that testify to the fact that this here, right here, that we I hold in my hand, the 66 books of the Bible, this English version of it, and this King James Bible, is in fact the complete, perfect Word of God. And the first witness that we looked at was, of course, the witness of the Holy Spirit. This is a spiritual book. God's words are spirit, and they are going to resonate with our, the Holy Spirit that's within us. And the, the, whenever you're born again, there's just something in you, something that God puts in you, we know the voice of the shepherd. We can tell, we can discern the difference between the real thing and a phony. A lost person can't do that, but a saved person can. But at the same time, anyone could say their spirit testifies of something. So that one witness by itself is not enough. And when it comes to very important things, we see that principle of two or three witnesses always in the Bible. So we not only have the Holy Spirit, but where we left off this morning was on the second witness where we talked about the Word of God itself. The fact that this Bible does not contradict itself is an amazing statement right there. The fact that it agrees with the Spirit. When we see these two things in agreement, that says an awful lot. In a passage that we just read in Hebrews 4, verse 12, it says, For the Word of God is quick, meaning alive, and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. No other book can make that claim. Nobody else even makes that claim about any other book. I don't even know if the, you know, Mormons think that highly of their Book of Mormon. I don't even know that the Muslims think that highly of their Quran. And you know what? They shouldn't because those books... There is no doubt they do not compare. In fact, I just had a Muslim guy the other day give me a Quran, and it was like he was apologizing to me for the writing in it and how bad it is as he's giving it to me, just saying, you know, this doesn't always sound good in other languages. You know, it's meant to be read in Arabic. And so it was like he was apologizing because he knew that it's inferior to the Bible. But what's amazing about the Bible, it reads great in every language. What's, the, what's going on there? You know why? Because it's the Word of God. So there's, a, there's just a massive difference. There's no doubt about that. And so when it comes to these 66 books, that is the case for all of them. When it comes to any other book that people claim should be a part of the Word of God, it is not that way. It is, these books are not living books. We all know the difference between a dead body and a live body. I mean, it's pretty easy to tell. Just from looking, and you can tell the difference between a living book and a dead book. And the Word of God is a living book. And so the Word of God itself, the Bible itself, is a revealer of truth. It says in there, it pierces even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and joints and marrow. Is it a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart? The Bible, it's able to get to the bottom of things. If you have a problem in your life... The Word of God can help you figure out what that problem is and how to fix that problem. It does all these things. It, the, the things that the Bible teaches, if we will implement them in our life, it will, it'll fix our family. 
It can fix relationships. It can fix so many things in your life. If you will just do what it says to do, you can't say that about any other book. The, the, and, and if you do get something great from another book, it's because the principles in that book line up with what the Word of God says. It's God's Word, and you know what? The Bible said it first. So the Bible gets credit for it every time. It says in verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him of whom we have to do. So the, so the Bible it gets to the bottom of everything and every one and every situation. And that's why the, uh, we mentioned the verse this morning where it talks about the spiritual. He judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. The carnal man is not able to judge spiritual things. They'll look at what we do. They don't get it. They don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. Yet you and I, we're able to understand both. We can judge the lost. We can judge the saved. Why? Because we have the word of God. It helps us get to the bottom of all these things. And so, you know, and, and you know, and I'm, don't take this as bragging. This isn't bragging. Anybody who is saved can do this if they would actually just be obedient to the word of God. But it's amazing all the things that we, the world is just perplexed and confused by that we're not. For example, you know, they're always trying to figure out what's what's wrong in the mind of these sociopaths and these psychopaths. Well, we get it. They've been given over to a reprobate mind. It makes perfect sense to us. Why can't we reform these people? Why can't they reform these pedophiles? Why don't these people ever get fixed? I just heard somebody the other day, again, talking about pedophiles and how they believe that they can be saved and reformed and all this stuff. They just have never seen it. And, and you know, and... So, and they'll look at these and figure, we got to figure out what to do. Do these people need some kind of medication? You and I, we're just looking at that and like, hey, what's wrong with you? You know, the solution for those who would offend a child and hurt a child is to have a millstone hung around their neck and them cast into the sea. There's no reforming these people. But yet you got all these people trying so hard. We just got to figure out, we got to do these brain scans, find out what's wrong with their brain. Hey, the word of God clears that all up. We can we see right through this stuff, and a lot of people, they would see it too if they would just have faith in the Word of God, but the problem with these people is they just reject the Word of God. So they can't figure it out, but here's the thing, folks. You and I, we have the Spirit of God. We have faith. Who cares what these people say? Who cares? We know, and we understand them. I get why they don't see it. They're lost. They are non-believers. They reject Jesus Christ. They reject his word. They are on their way to hell. And we do. It's, it's like even Christians sometimes, we want this Bible to be like that book of facts that settles everything, right? And it should be, but what do you do when people just reject it? You know, for, you know, for example, too, you know, I'm thankful for how clear a lot of things in our Constitution and the Bill of Rights are. Yet, when people don't like it, they still don't understand it either, do they? Like the First Amendment and the Second Amendment. It's so clear, yet we got to debate these things all the time. Why? It, it's If you know English, it's pretty clear what these things mean. But people just reject it. And so it's the same thing with the Word of God. So when I see somebody debating certain things about the Scriptures, you know what I see? I see people who just don't like what the Scripture says. I see people who do not recognize the authority of the scriptures. They do not, uh, they do not respect or acknowledge the authority of God. 
And if I see somebody debating over the right to keep and bear arms, I see people who do not recognize the authority of the Constitution. That's what, that's what I see. Because these things are real clear. So the problem isn't whether or not, it, you know, to me there's no issue about what the Constitution says and what it means. The issue is these people just don't like it. And they want to get rid of it. That's all there is to it. And that's how a lot of people are with the Bible. Because it is. It's that clear. And it sets everything straight. So the Word of God is a revealer of truth. And the Word of God, it testifies of itself by its power. When we see the power that the Word of God has, I mean, that tells us something about it. And I've never heard about anybody's life getting changed, you know, after reading the book of Tobit and Judith. I've never heard of that. You know, I've never heard of anybody when they read that story about that woman who every time she'd marry a guy, this demon would come and kill her husband before they could consummate the marriage. And then finally, Raphael the angel comes and they catch this great fish and they use the entrails of this fish to do some spell to cast the demon away. And then she's finally able to get married and consummate the marriage. I've never heard about anybody's life getting changed by that book. That just sounds like a weird story. And yeah, it's a real weird story. That's another reason a lot of people don't think that belongs in the Bible, because it looks kind of like witchcraft that they're doing in there. So, you know, and, and I wish we had time to go through a lot of those books and just give you a lot of evidence of where they sometimes contradict the Bible, why these things shouldn't be in the Bible. I, I think it's interesting. You know, some of that stuff can bore people to tears, but at the same time, never, never heard of anybody's life being changed by those things. Yet, we see people all the time whose lives are changed and helped by the book of Job. When I, I mean, I, I can't even tell you how many just amazing testimonies I've heard from people who have gone through just horrible tragedies in their life. And that book of the Bible helped them get through that. It's just amazing what it's, it, it's done for them and things that it's taught. You can't say that. But, you know, I've never heard anybody talk about how even just great works of literature just change their life. You know, how many lives were changed? How many marriages got fixed after they read Lord of the Rings? And after they read, you know, nobody, nobody gets any, their lives fixed from that. You know, I would, it, it's the Word of God that does these things and fixes people. So the Word of God, it also testifies of itself by its perfection. So only something authorized by God could have the amount of content that the Bible does. I mean, there, there's a lot of Bible here. Proof is that a lot of Christians, they never even read through the whole thing. It, you know why? Because it's a lot of work. Because there's a lot of stuff there. Yet there's all that content, yet it doesn't contradict itself in any way. That's amazing. Most of us, you know, you watch just a TV show. You watch a, like a TV series, and the, a lot of times there's holes in the storyline. And there's like bloopers in there. And they've got like a bunch of writers who their job is to kind of figure out a lot of these things. And a lot of times you, you see mistakes. You see bloopers in movies. And you think about the millions of dollars they spend on some of these things, all the people working on it, and they don't catch these things. How did that happen? You know how it come? Because anything with humans is going to be full of error. But yet we've got a Bible that doesn't have any error. How did that happen? You know what? It's called a miracle of God. That's what. That's all there is to it. It's a miracle of God. So, uh, people, they'll tell you there's contradictions. You know, they say that. People will say, here's a contradiction in the Bible, but here's the thing, they never show you. And when they do try to show you a contradiction, and it's always one they found online. 
Nobody ever will show you a contradiction that I was reading my Bible and I noticed a discrepancy between this passage and this passage. Nobody ever does that. It's always one they found online or somebody told them about. That's that every time. But the thing is, a lot of times these supposed contradictions, they just reveal their ignorance or their error in their doctrine. And that's the problem. It's like, well, here's why this looks like it conflicts. Because you're wrong on your doctrine. You know, if you're a Calvinist, I can see why you're going to have a lot of problems with a lot of scriptures in the Bible. I'm going to see why you need to be able to pick which version you want to use because to find one that lines up with what you teach. You're going to have to if you if you have some kind of teaching like that. And Calvinists love to correct the Bible. They love it. But people like us, people who believe salvation the way we do, we don't need to correct anything in the Bible. I don't. We don't need to fix anything in our doctrine when it comes to this King James Bible because our doctrine lines up with the Bible, so we don't need we don't need multiple versions. So if your interpretation of the scripture ever does conflict with another scripture, then that just means your interpretation is wrong. And we make mistakes all the time, don't we? It's very common for us to look at a passage and say, this seems like it contradicts this passage over here. Well, that just means you're looking at it wrong. That means you're interpreting it wrong. And so, and if we didn't have a perfect Bible, then what would we end up doing? We would just end up being wrong. But thankfully, this Bible, it fixes all those mistakes. It's able to do that because of the fact that it is perfect. Thank God for that. So in Matthew 22, verse 28, says there, this is a famous passage. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? This is a woman that had seven wives, but they all died, or she didn't have any children. But they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, Ye do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. Your error in your thinking, because they're thinking, you know, this is pro- this is a question the Sadducees had who didn't believe in a resurrection. I personally think this was probably a question that they stumped the Pharisees on all the time who did believe in a resurrection. And so like, okay, fine, Pharisees. What about this woman that we knew that had seven husbands? Whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? And the Pharisees didn't have an answer. That. They, they didn't know what to do, but Jesus comes along and he says, you err not knowing the scriptures. The Sadducees, they, they were wrong in their theology that didn't believe in a resurrection, that didn't recognize that power of God, so they didn't understand how this would work. The Pharisees, they had errors in their theology, so they're not going to be able to answer that question either. And you know, when there's just things that we can't answer, that we can't figure out, it means we probably got something wrong somewhere. And we need to figure it out and try to try to answer that. And so uh, Jesus goes on to explain how, you know, in the resurrection, we're going to be like the angels in heaven. We're not going to be marrying or giving in marriage. So he basically told them, hey, here's your problem. You don't understand the Bible. We're going to be like the angels in the resurrection. So nobody's going to be married to her. There's your answer. Nobody's going to be married to her. That was what it all came down to. But. They were confused because they had bad doctrines. So if another book conflicts with the 66 books that we have here, then that book can't be God's word. Unless that one book is God's word and then all these other 66 are wrong. I mean, do we we really think that, I mean, throughout history, they didn't get one of these right? No, obviously they got them right. And the fact that they all go together 
proves it. And so when another book comes along, then, you know, we should, uh, we should reject it, especially when we see that it contradicts the Bible. So, uh, you know, even the Romans, you know, they understood the importance of the two witnesses because even at Jesus' trial, they tried to get two witnesses and they couldn't. And so it's just amazing that people all want to just follow anything that just contradicts the Bible. It's just because a lot of people don't like it. But it says in Psalms 119, verse 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abided. God, there, listen, there is no doubt that God's word has always been. And throughout time, though, God has revealed his word to us. I believe God's word was settled in heaven before the Garden of Eden. It was all settled in heaven before that, but I don't believe they had like a King James Bible, you know, in the Garden of Eden. I don't believe they had a King James Bible in, you know, uh, in Paul's day. People are always like criticizing us. You know, these people act like, you know, Paul carried around a King James Bible. Well, no, but I think whatever language he was using, uh, I think it lined up with our King James Bible. I believe, I do believe that, but I don't think he had a King James Bible. But here's what I do believe. I do believe that God's word, it was settled from the beginning of time, but over time, God has revealed that word to us. During Moses' day, God revealed Genesis through Deuteronomy to them. And throughout time, these different books came along. And in Jesus' day, you know, or after Jesus' day, you know, you had the apostles who revealed even more of God's word. In fact, their preaching and their teaching of the New Testament is what helped us understand and revealed the Old Testament to us. A lot of the things that were hidden in the past. That's one of the amazing things about it. But here's the question we've got to ask. So throughout time, God's been revealing his word to us. So the question is, and I kind of mentioned this this morning a little bit, but why can't another book be re- revealed before Christ returns? I mean, what, you know, who am I to say that God can't do that? What if... Before John, because, you know, before he wrote the book of Revelation, if some preacher just got up and declared, we've got it all with those 65 books. And then John comes along and, and writes that book. You know, who decided that? Who, you know, who came up with that? You know, does Revelation chapter 22, in the very last chapter, at the end of that chapter, when it's talking about a curse, if you add to the words of this prophecy or if you take away, I mean, is that proof? I mean, I think... It kind of makes sense that God would do that at the end of the Bible. I get it. That's specifically talking about the book of Revelation. But the fact that that was the final message that God gave to man, I think that's pretty significant by itself. But, you know, is that absolute proof that there can't be, you know, another book? And I believe that that by itself is enough. But again, that takes us to our third witness. I think our third witness is what proves to us that Revelation would be the final book, that that's it, and we will never accept another book that comes along unless Jesus Christ himself hands it to us and that in the millennium. Until I, and So I will not accept another book until I have my glorified body. And I, I, I think I'm safe. In saying that. And so the reason for that is our third and our final witness. So the first witness is the Holy Spirit. The second witness is the Bible itself. This is a witness. When Jesus was on earth, 
Jesus testified of himself, and that was a witness. That counted as one witness, but even that one witness wasn't enough. There was the Father, and there was the Holy Spirit that also testified of him. The Word of God, the Scriptures also testified of him. So the third witness is the churches throughout history. Okay, The churches throughout history, I believe that they are the third witness. And so one of the reasons I do believe that these 66 books are completed scripture is this is what churches, you know, especially ones that are right on doctrine, have historically taught were the completed scriptures. That's what churches have been teaching for a long time. Now, again, you can always find an exception or two out there. But you study that group out, and you'll probably see that they were a weird cult. You're probably going to see that they had a lot of really weird doctrine. If you see hear about another group that accepted some other books that most churches have rejected, you'll probably find that they were people that were into Gnosticism and things that were back during those uh, during those first centuries. You're, you know, or they're going to be Catholics. They're going to be known, proven heretics that have accepted these other books. And really the biggest exception to any other Christian group ever accepting anything but these 66 books is the Catholic Church. And I know a lot of people are wanting to find, you know, they're they're just praying for the Catholic Church to be reformed, and they want to run back to the Mother Church like nobody's business. But folks, we were never a part of the Catholic Church. They are not our Mother Church. They are a, they are the mother of harlots, is what they are. They are a completely separate branch that is completely phony and of the devil, and people do. They always try to say, you got your 66 books at the Council of Nicaea. The Catholic decided your 66 books. And, the, and we all know all the Catholic conspiracies. We know the Catholics are the one that destroyed a lot of history during the Crusades and things. They've been trying to keep things from people in history. And you know, you tell me about any conspiracy about the Catholic Church and all their hidden information, I'll probably get into it. I'll probably believe it to a certain extent. But one thing that I know the Catholic Church is not capable of doing is stopping the Word of God. One thing the Catholic Church, as powerful as they were throughout history, they were never able to do. They were never able to prevail against the church. And they tried. But Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. You better believe the Catholics aren't going to prevail against the church. You better believe that the Word of God is eternal. And no matter how hard the Catholics have tried throughout the years to stop the Word of God and stop the translating of the Word of God in English, they never could get it done. You know why? Because the Word of God is bigger than the Catholics. It's bigger than any organization out there. They're not capable of doing it. The Word of God will always be. So just understand, tell me whatever conspiracy you want and about information that they've hidden from the world, and I'll probably believe it to a certain extent, but you try to tell me that they have stopped the Word of God or hidden the Word of God, I won't believe you. I will not believe you. The Word of God, it's here for every generation, and... The Catholics, they don't have that kind of power. They never will have that kind of power. The Word of God is more powerful. So people, again, they, they want to credit these other sources like the Council of Nicaea, and I don't have time to go into all the history of that, but that Council of Nicaea, they were, they were trying, the Catholic Church means universal church. They were trying to start an ecumenical church. They were trying to bring all the religions together, kind of like a lot of people today. And... In order to do that, it, it's very important that you not be too radical when it comes to some of your beliefs and that you not be too extreme and too different from everybody else. 
Otherwise, you're not going to unite everybody. And so if you're trying to bring everybody together and a majority of churches are all accepting these 66 books of Scripture, you know what? You're probably going to want to do that too. And that's exactly what they did. But these 66 books were already pretty much decided on in the 3rd century before the Council of Nicaea ever came along. But let me tell you, though, explain, though, why I believe those early churches uh, are a good source and why we should accept their witness. And again, history, you can find whatever you want in history. I'm not going to get into all the sources and things out there, uh, but really, I think just some common sense can help us know what we should listen to, what we shouldn't. But first off, let's look at the canon of the Old Testament real quick, okay? The 39 books of the Old Testament. Now, who decided on those? Okay? Who decided those 39 books were the Word of God? And the truth is, it was the Jews. Okay? And most people would tell you, most people, even non-King James-only people, would tell you that the Jew, that, that during Jesus' day, that they probably had a perfectly preserved Old Testament during Jesus' day. And historically, you can see it's real easy to prove there's a lot of sources that the Jews during that first century, they accepted these 39 books as Scripture. And I believe they're a good authority. They say, oh, you can't trust the Jews on anything. Well, I, I get that. But you know there are some very important things that God entrusted to the Jews. And you know what one of those things were? The oracles of God. It says in Romans 3, 1, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision, much every way chiefly, because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. Listen, the Jews got a lot of stuff wrong, and they did a lot of bad things throughout history, but you know what they did do? They preserved the Scriptures in the Old Testament. They did get that done. That is something that they accomplished, and thank God that they got that done. So the written word, did you know that's not the only thing God entrusted to the Jews? God also entrusted the seed to the Jews. And, uh, and, and I don't have time to go into all the scriptures on this, but y'all realize all these laws, that many of these laws and things that God gave to the Jews in the Old Testament were to help preserve them as a nation until Jesus came. And after Jesus came and died, they were on their own. And guess what? They, did, they lasted 40 years. They lasted 40 years without God, and then they were wiped out, they were finished. But Galatians 3.18 says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? What was the purpose of it? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come, to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hands of a mediator. God promised some things to Abraham into his seed, and God ended up adding law because they kept being wicked and they kept doing bad stuff. If they didn't follow these laws, they were going to be wiped out. They were going to be destroyed as a people. They were never going to make it. And then the promise can't be fulfilled because the seed doesn't come. Because that seed was promised to come through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And eventually the seed came. And so God entrusted that seed to Israel. And you know what? Jesus came, didn't he? We see his genealogy. They survived. Jesus came. They made it. But not only that, God entrusted that seed specifically when he was born to Joseph and Mary. Y'all realize 
Joseph and Mary, they didn't have any supernatural abilities. They didn't have any ability to do miracles. But you know what they did do? They, they were somebody that God could trust. And when Jesus was born, you know what they did? They had him circumcised on the eighth day, which was very, very important. They offered up the two turtle doves as an offering. They kept all those customs. They took him to Jerusalem for the feast. They did all the things that good Jewish people were supposed to do because they, that child that was being born, he needed to follow that law. He needed to fulfill all those things that you and I couldn't fill. And thankfully, God had somebody he was able to entrust the seed to, and it was Joseph and Mary. And you know what? They got it done. They got it done. And the Jews, for all the things you could say about them, one thing they got done, they preserved those scriptures for us. They preserved them. And so the 39 books, these are what they've all accepted. These are what they've always accepted. Now, what about the Apocrypha? All right. What about, <clears throat> you know, what about the Apocrypha? Are we sure that they knew what they were doing there? Well, here's an interesting thing about the Apocrypha. All those books in the Apocrypha, do you know none of them have any messages from God in there? There's no voice of the prophets anywhere in there. And that's why the Jews never even accepted them as scripture. In fact, in 1 Maccabees 9.27, it says, So there was great distress in Israel, the worst since the time when prophets ceased to appear among them. Malachi was the last prophet that they had, and he prophesied of the coming of John the Baptist. And then John the Baptist came, Testify the Messiah, but there was 400 years between those two prophets. And so during that time, there was stuff happened. History took place, but you know what? God didn't speak. They're also known as the 400 silent years. So we don't have any scripture from that time. There was none. And what's interesting too, people like to bring up how, you know, the Apocryphas and the King James. Well, here's an interesting little fact about that. If you read the King James, you'll notice some difference, or in the King James Apocrypha, you'll notice while you're reading in there just the way they translate the names and things. It's clear that the Apocrypha, it was translated from Greek. All the, the Old Testament was translated from the Hebrew, but the Apocrypha, that all came from the Septuagint, which was a collection of 70 manuscripts that they found that were all the Old Testament in Greek. Okay? And... The Apocrypha, it, it, you know, those things all came from Greek manuscripts. And the oldest Septuagint that we know of is from 500 years after the time of Christ. So there's no evidence. You know, people say, well, that's what Jesus would have been reading in his day, the Septuagint. Well, we have no evidence of the fact or of him you know, ever referencing the Apocrypha. Think about this, too. And we don't have time to go through this. But over and over again in the New Testament, we see quoting of the Old Testament. We see them quoting Moses. We see them quoting the prophets. We see them quoting the Psalms. Over and over again, we see them talking about Job. We can go and see all these examples of these books or even collections of books. Because sometimes, too, you got to understand with those Old Testament books, they didn't always have them laid out the way we did. Like the prophets, they just kind of had them all. It was kind of all one book. The way, the way they had it then, it wasn't even in the order that we necessarily have it in today. But what's interesting about all of the Apocrypha, all that Apocrypha that was in the Septuagint, that's in the middle of the King James Bible, nothing from there is ever quoted in the New Testament. Jesus never quoted from it. The apostles never quoted. There is nothing in there that any 
thing in the New Testament ever quotes, even though the New Testament is full of Old Testament quotes. That should tell us something right there. Why didn't any of the apostles ever refer to anything that's in it? You know why? Because it wasn't Scripture. You know why? Because when Paul's preaching, when Peter's preaching, you know what they were doing? They were preaching the Bible. They were preaching the Old Testament. And they never preached from that because it wasn't Scripture. So we would be, we'd, it'd be ridiculous. And here's the thing too, at least in the, in the King James, notice how they put it in a, they separated it. They separated it from the others because of the fact that it was in question on whether or not it should be in the Bible. And that whole debate's another story for another day. But you know what's interesting? In the Catholic Bible, Brother Sean, let me borrow his Catholic Bible. And I was looking through that. The Old Testament and the, the Apocrypha, they're all mixed in together. They're all mixed in together in there, which is interesting, making it uh, seem more like, you know, it, it is a part of the Bible. But you know what? That's the Catholics for you. But it's always been a question, and churches have always rejected it as the Apocrypha. And so, you know, when our really only major exception we have is the Catholic Church, I think we should probably take issue with that and say, you know what? That's probably not something we should count on. The fact that Jesus never quoted from it one time, the apostles never quoted from it one time. Look how much Paul would go back to the Old Testament. He never one time went to the Apocrypha. I don't think we should probably count that as Scripture. If the early Christians didn't believe it, then neither should we. So God committed that to the church. And what's interesting, too, about Revelation, okay? So what about in that first century? Because in the first century, I mean, again... They weren't carrying around Bibles like we do today. They didn't have the completed New Testament during that time. It was being written during that time. But over time, those letters would circulate. They would get around. And I think it makes sense that the final book would be written by the last living apostle, John, and that they would cease after the death of the last apostle. Because those apostles, they were, I mean, they were foundational to the church. People get real freaked out because the Catholics go overboard on Peter being the rock and Baptists. I think they are mangling that verse too. It's not that weird to say Peter is a rock. It doesn't mean you know, Jesus is the rock. Listen, God uses people to do things. God uses used people to build his church. It says in Ephesians 2.19, Now therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles. I thought Jesus is the foundation. Uh, yeah, Jesus is the foundation, folks. But, you know, a lot of times when it's using analogies and things that are figurative, it can do it more ways than one and use other things like that. The apostles, yes, they are the foundation. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Obviously, Jesus is the most important. Yeah, I get it. Jesus is the most important, but so are the apostles. And you know what? And the apostles, they are what, they are the ones who wrote the New Testament. They are the ones that gave us this New Testament. The apostles in that early church, they were the authority in the church. They were the ones that told people what to do. They were the ones that went around and established these churches and told people, this is how it's done. It was the apostles. Jesus gave them the authority to do that. I think the Bible's always been the authority. What about when they didn't have the Bible? You know, what did they do before these things were written? 
they had the instruction of the apostles. That was the authority during that time. And so, you know, once, uh, and so because all the New Testament are all books that were written by the apostles or under the authority of apostle, I think it's safe to say these are the ones that we should follow. Now, and I'm not 100% about this. Again, I'm trusting in historians. But um, from what I understand, all of the New Testament was either written by or under the direction of an apostle. So, for example, like Mark and Luke, okay? Mark, um, I believe, was written under the... Uh, well, who was it? I think it was it was Mark. He wrote it under the direction of Peter, and supposedly Luke, he wrote that under the the direction of the Apostle Paul as well. And Luke also wrote the Book of Acts. And some people even believe too that Luke is actually who wrote the Book of Hebrews, but under the direction of Paul, which kind of makes sense because when you read Hebrews, it's like that's Paul. Whenever I read the Book of Hebrews, I think that's Paul. But at the same time, I think I can show you proof here too in a second, that Paul didn't write Hebrews. But yet, it does seem like it is Paul. And I always say it's Paul. But I think it was under the direction. So, but here's here's the thing. What criteria did they use in the second century to determine what were scriptures and not? What what did they do? Because I think this is, I think this is interesting. So, the criteria they used is it had to be apostolic. Any book that was going to be considered scripture had to come from an apostle. And so they would ask the question, was it written by an apostle or under the direction of the of an apostle? And so they expected this just as the Jews expected theirs to be underwritten by the prophets. So Paul, he was insistent that his readers should be reassured that letters received actually came from his pen. Remember what we said in Second Thessalonians chapter 2? Well, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17, listen to what he said. This is why I think you can say he didn't write the book of Hebrews. He said, the salutation of Paul with mine own hand, which is the token in every epistle, so I write. And you know, if you look at all of Paul's epistles, you know what the first word is in all of Paul's epistles? Paul. That's the first word, but that's not in Hebrews. And he said, this is the token. This is something I put in my epistles so you know that's written by me. So maybe the reason Hebrews sounds like Paul is it was written under his direction. Some people think it was written by Timothy, which would make sense why he sounds like Paul since Paul was his mentor. But, you know, I, I don't know. The thing is, it would have been a lot easier for them to figure it out back then when some of them would have known guys like John. And I think I think we can trust what they had to say. So... Uh, it had to be, it had to be apostolic. It had to be authentic. In other words, did it have a ring of truth? And when you say, well, what does that mean? Well, remember my first point? The Holy Spirit reveals it to us. If they were reading something like, you know, this just doesn't make any sense. If they were reading the apocalypse of Peter, if you ever read that before, it's kind of trippy. All right. It's, it's really weird. Okay. He ta- it, it, it describes hell in great detail in there, and it's pretty disturbing. You know, it'd be a good, you could preach a good message out of that book. But it's also really weird. I just, I don't know. I read it, and something in my spirit says, ah, no, no. Entertaining, you know, uh, the word of God, no. 
Uh, and so um, that was that was something they looked at. The authoritative voice of the prophets. This is what the Lord says is matched by the apostles' claim to not ride the words of men, but the words of God. It was the internal witness of the text themselves that was the strong evidence of canonicity. So in other words, when you just read these words, there's power to them. They line up with everything in the scriptures. And so First Thessalonians 2.13 says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. The Apostle Paul said, you are receiving what we are writing to you as the word of God. Paul thought his writings were the word of God. And you know what? They were. They were. They were written under the inspiration of God. Well, So another thing they looked at is ancient. In other words, has it been used from the earliest times? If a book didn't come along until the second or third century, then we got a problem. If a book doesn't come along until the 21st century, we got a problem. Have, have, have these books always been being used? If somebody goes and finds something that was you know, written 500 AD, I don't think we can count that as scripture. There, there, there's no way you can do that. Every generation would have had to have it if it was the word of God. And so many of the other gospels, there are so-called gospels that are out there, they were, they were written after the second century. There's no way those could have been authoritative. There's just absolutely no way. And most of the false writings were rejected simply because they were too new to be apostolic. That's why they rejected like things like the Gospel of Thomas and ones like that. And so early in the fourth century, Athanasius listed the New Testament canon as we know it today, and claimed that these were the books received by us through tradition as belonging to the canon. So, um, so historically, we're not alone in what we believe on this. And so, they also looked at it as accepted. In other words, so are most of the churches using it? Okay? And since we've seen it took time for the letters to circulate among the churches, it's even more significant that almost all these books were universally accepted well before the middle of the second century. And that, that was the case. And so, you know, when tradition shows that the overwhelming majority of churches widely, you know, throughout these widely scattered Christian community all accepted these books, we should probably take that serious. Same thing too. You know, if I get up one of these days and I preach something and I'm like, you know what folks, no one's ever preached this before. I am the first one to discover this doctrine. The church for the last 20 or 2,000 years has been without this great doctrine until I came along. You know, you probably shouldn't listen to that. You know, we should all get freaked out if we're a part of a group or some movement where we're like the only saved people in the world. We're the only ones serving God. We're, I mean, eh, you know what? When people start getting like that, I get a little freaked out. Really? We're the only saved preachers out there? We're the only ones? To, and I, I've heard people say stuff like that, and they'll even include me in the group. You know what? When people do that, I get freaked out. I get freaked out. Listen, if you want to talk about a group of just a few people that are the only ones preaching the truth, please keep me out of that group. I don't want to be a part of that. 
I, I do not think so highly of myself to think that, you know, I'm like the first person in history to finally get everything right. You know, we ought to be able to find what we believe and our position out there, you know, historically somewhere. And if you, if you are, if you're just that unique, you're probably a cult. You're probably a cult. So, uh, don't even try to flatter with that. I'll get freaked out real fast. And so, the last thing they looked at was accurate. So, in other words, does it conform to the orthodox teaching of the churches? And so, you know, again, if another, if a book would have come along teaching a salvation that wasn't by grace, they're going to know this isn't right. If this isn't lining up with everything else that we're teaching in the church, church, this isn't right. We've got a problem here because, again, these things all need to be in agreement. We've got to have multiple witnesses here. And there was widespread agreement among the churches across the empire as to the constant Christian message and when it came to certain doctrines. And so that goes along with the second point. If these books agreed with all the other books, that told them something. Because if it's God's word, it's not going to conflict. You know, some of my sermons might conflict with each other. Some of my doctrinal positions might conflict with each other sometimes because I'm human and I make errors. But the Word of God's not going to do that. So, so I don't know about using churches as precedent to prove something's right. Well, you know the Apostle Paul did. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, 13, after he's been explaining about you know women praying with their head covered and long hair, and you all know that passage. But look what he says in verse 13. Judging yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Does that even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? Wait a minute. Show me in the Old Testament anywhere it says it's a sin for a man to have long hair. Show me that in the Old Testament. Somebody tell me the Old Testament scripture where it says it's a shame for a man to have long hair or it's a sin for a man. Anybody tell, show me that? Well, it doesn't say it was scriptural. It says nature itself teaches you this. That it's a shame for a man to have long hair. Yeah, but it's not in the scripture. You legalists add into the scripture. Well, look at what he said here. He goes on and says, But if a woman have long hair, is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. I don't see a command in the Bible in the Old Testament where it says a woman has to have long hair. Legalist. Add into the Scripture. But then look what he says. But if any man seem to be contentious, all right, that's that guy. I want to see the Scripture on it. You show me something in the Bible that specifically says that I can't be stinking repulsive to the male gender and have my long, scraggly hair. You legalists, how dare you think, I just heard some guys the other day, you know, speaking against using this verse to condemn guys having long hair. Are you crazy? I can see him maybe being a little contentious about this back then, but we're still contentious about this after what Paul said. But listen to what he said. But if any man seemed to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. So you know what he's saying right here? Hey, you all, you know, you think we're radical. Nobody's doing this. This practice that you're wanting to do, this junk that's going on in your church, you're the only ones doing this stuff. None of the churches of God, we don't have any custom like that. You know what? You're off in left field all by yourself. You're wrong. And folks, that's one of the reasons too, when it comes to a lot of our customs and traditions and things that we do that aren't necessarily laid out in the Bible, we do take into consideration, we do take into consideration what other churches that are like us are doing. And that's why we follow the trends of the old paths crowd. People that have good doctrine, people that have been around, 
People that have been proven, and that's why we reject the trends of the new crowd. Because I'm not seeing anyone with these customs that they have preaching the truth. I'm not seeing that. You know what I see with everybody who accepts their custom? I see them throwing out their King James Bible. I show them just bringing carnality in the church. I show, I see them telling people it's okay for a man to have long hair. It's okay for women to preach. It's okay for you to drink. That's what they all do. That's what they're all doing. And so, of course, you know, we use what other churches do as precedent and the fact that churches throughout history have accepted these 66 books, ones that are right on doctrine, ones who taught the truth about salvation, ones that have proven themselves. You know what that tells me? I'm going to join with that group. I'm going to do what that group does. And so I believe the churches throughout history, they are that third witness, and I believe they're a good witness. And so when you consider the fact that the Holy Spirit that is inside of you is testifying that this is the Word of God, when you have this book itself that has no contradictions in it, that it's just perfect, that just has the power that it does. And if you can't see the power, it's because you're spiritually blind. When you have that, and then you have the churches of God, the ones who have been doing the work of God, the ones that have helped preserve this good doctrine, the ones who have done the great works, when they're all saying the same thing, you know what I think we should easily conclude? They're right. This is it. And if some clown wants to come along, well, let me tell you something. I've done my research. I've watched hours of YouTube videos. And I believe that this other book should be included in the canon. And I know more than the rest of you. Okay, well, let's see your church. Oh, that's right. You don't have one. You're a basement dweller. Let's, let's show me the church throughout history. And that's the thing. I'll have all these clowns that will come on there and want to contradict me, people who have no church, people who have no history in their position, but they watch some YouTube videos. They read some articles online on some blog somewhere, and they're just going to straighten us all out in this stuff. Where are you throughout history? You don't exist. And if we do find you somewhere, you're some weird cult somewhere that died out. That's all, that's all you, that's all you are and that's all you ever will be. And so we can be confident and you know, it would sound really cool, you know, and it would probably be more interesting if I all told you folks, you know what there is? There's one more book. There's one more book. The Catholic church just kept it out of your, our Bible. But you know, God promised to preserve his word. The fact that I found it proves God did that, you know. And so, you know, we're going to, we're going to get a new Bibles printed. We're adding this 67th book and, uh, we're going to be the only church that does that. And the only real churches are the ones that have all 67 books. We're better than, we're better than all these King James only church. We're King James only with, you know, the bell and the dragon. And that's a cool story. But folks, that would mean we're some weird freak cult all by ourselves. I don't think we want to do that. God said the gates of hell wasn't going to prevail against this church. That means this church, the true church, it's always been around since the time of Christ. And if we can't find ourselves somewhere, we are. We're nothing more than some weird freak cult, and I don't want to be, I don't want to be that way. So if it's unique only to you, you're probably wrong. There's 2,000 years. We've been in this thing now as a New Testament church for 2,000 years. You are arrogant off the charts to think that we are the first generation to get these things right. We're supposed to be continuing something that Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against. So if you can't find your Bible somewhere in history, then there's probably something wrong with your Bible. That's all there is to it. If you have some weird belief, you can always find a cult. You'll always find somebody on the internet 
that will back you up and you can find a Facebook group out there somewhere too that you can join with a bunch of other freaks that believe just like you do. But you're never going to find a real groups, real churches throughout history. Just any one of these witnesses by itself is not all the proof that one would need. But when all three of these come together, we can know with confidence that we're right. And there is no doubt the Bible teaches the promise of preservation and the impact that these 66 books, that gives all the proof. Folks, the impact that the King James translation had on the world. That should give us all the proof that we need that there's something special about this book. Anybody, anybody knows the revival that's come since we got the NIV? Oh, I know what the NIV revival looks like. It's a bunch of skinny jean freak punks that are effeminate, that look like queers, that are going around preaching and teaching people it's okay to drink wine, it's okay for your wife to dress like a man, and there's no such thing as cross-dressing. That's what that, that's the revival that they've started, that those books have started. Folks, the proof is in the pudding. You just got to be blind. You just got to reject truth to not see it. And I'm here today to tell you, we've got the whole Bible. And I'm thankful for that. And we don't need anything else. And if you want to wait for some angel to come give you another gospel or another revelation of Jesus Christ, I recommend you go move out west and go join the Mormon church. That's where you belong in a weird cult. You guys can go wear your holy special underwear and do all the weird stuff that they do. You can go get baptized for your dead relatives. But you know what? Don't bring that stuff in here. We're, we're a real church, and we are just trying to continue something that Jesus Christ started. And he gave us everything we need to be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works, and it's right here. Thank God for it. So let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, dear God, that this will be a help. I pray, Lord, this just uh, help uh, increase our faith in your word and the confidence that uh, what we have is authoritative. We can trust it. We thank you for it, and I just pray you'll help us to read it and help us to follow what it says. In your name we pray. Amen.